0: Well, thank you very much uh, for the wonderful introduction. Uh, Second best introduction I ever got. The best was when the fellow who was going to introduce me came late, and I had to introduce myself. (laughs) It's an old political joke. uh, And thank you for using my middle name. The only reason why I started using my middle name was because I arrived at the United Nations, and a colleague of mine at the time was a fellow by the name of Mark Malik Brown. I go, well, if he's going to go Mark Malik Brown, I'll go Christopher Bancroft Burnham. you know there it is <laughs> the the uh, George Bancroft, who was uh, my relative in Massachusetts, uh, was the first secretary of uh he was not the first secretary of the Navy. he was Secretary of the Navy and founded the Naval Academy. He was also America's first great historian writing a uh, the definitive biography of George Washington when he could in fact still interview George Washington's colleagues and troops. So uh, I presume that's what you have, and I'd love to go see the original copies of that. Um, The Rothermere is a special place. I rode in the Rothermere, the Lord Rothermere, at my boarding school in Connecticut. The Rothermere's were educated there, Lord Rothermere sent his children there, most recently the class of 1986 at the Kent School in Kent, Connecticut. and then Lord Rothermere himself, I believe, in the class of 46. So we have a close connection to that. When I was invited uh, a number of years ago to to, uh, visit with uh, Nigel in New York, I jumped at the chance. And of course, it's a wonderful uh, institute you have here and such an important one. It's important because we have a special relationship. We have a special friendship. Even last night, Dr. Peter Varnish took me to the Royal Academy of Engineering where we heard the first sea lord and even the first sea lord talked about our cousins across the sea. Um, So it is heartwarming to think that uh, you still see us in these terms even though when we visit your queen we give them 8-track tapes of Motown. Does the queen have an 8-track tape player? The last one I had was in a convertible. Uh, circa 1974. The um, American foreign policy is a, is, a, uh, is at a point of great, great transition if not uh, some degree of stress. So not only did I work for the last president, I worked for Colin Powell for almost four years and then Condi Rice before going on to the United Nations. I was also one of Mitt Romney's senior foreign policy advisors focused on United Nations, international organizations activities that I uh, uh, met with and spoke with Mitt Romney about. So clearly, you know, I don't even need to have full disclosure here. I am solidly a Republican. I'd like to think of myself as a classic conservative, not a neocon or, a, or, or, uh, or as my friend John Bolton says, what makes me a neocon, I've always been a con. The, uh, the <laughs> so, so, there's nothing, nothing neo about John Bolton, and, and, and I'd be hard-pressed, and I think we'd come up with many different definitions of what a classic conservative is. But my grandfather used to say, uh, you know, be not the first to embrace the new, nor the last to usher out the old. George Soros, who's not a conservative, wrote uh, last week in an op-ed in La Mans. Putin may be holding out the prospect for a grand margin in which Russia would help the United States, a grand bargain, excuse me, in which Russia would help the United States against ISIS. What is worse is that President Obama may accept such a deal. That would be a tragic mistake with far-reaching geopolitical consequences. Why are we so desperate to do a deal with Vladimir Putin? Why does the President have to lean over on stage at a microphone he thought was off and say, I can do more for you, Mr. Medvedev, after the election than I can, or tell Vladimir, I can do more for him after the election. Soros goes on to write, all available resources ought to be put to work in the the war effort, even if that involves running a budget deficits. Amazing, from George Soros. Not only the survival of the new Ukraine, but the survival of NATO and the European Union itself is at risk. The, uh, he went on to say in comments at this conference in Brussels last week that America is weak and Obama is incompetent. Uh, strong words from a man who's uh, funding the, the Democratic left campaigns right now uh, that we will have next Tuesday. We have three classic foreign policy doctrines in our American history. We have the Monroe Doctrine, 1823, where we said Europe stay out, this is our area and our prerogative. Uh, the Western Hemisphere is under the sole purview of the United States. The Truman Doctrine, 1970, uh, 47, and the, the National Security uh, Policy Doctrine, 68 that we will, of 1950, that we will contain the Soviets and communism everywhere and at all times. And beautifully articulated 20 years later by Jack Kennedy when he said, let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we will pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, in order to ensure the survival and success of liberty. Now we have the Obama Doctrine, which is, we will not act before the French. How do we, how do we rectify how we've come as a nation from Monroe Doctrine to the Truman Doctrine to the Obama policies? And what type of policy shall we have? Shall we have a neoconservative one of global, globalist and interventionist? Shall we have the moral responsibility to act even against our own national interest, which would be a humanitarian policy? Should we go to the European balance of power that you all have practiced here so adroitly for 400 years since uh, the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 and the Congress of Vienna in 1815? Or shall we have collective security such as NATO and just continue to live by that? I'm not sure what type of foreign policy we have today. I joked last month that I, when I was invited earlier to speak here at Rothermere, uh, I joked that I'm here to speak on American foreign policy if I can find one. <laughs> uh, you don't have to be George Soros to understand that at present we are viewed by friend and foe alike as weak and lacking in courage. I've heard that from Emiratis, uh, Saudi Arabians, Japanese, Uh, I recently spoke in New York with a leading Chinese official. We were on a panel together at Columbia uh, University uh, School of Business. And as as, who's an old friend and as old friends do, uh, over dinner and drinks we were candid with one another. So it's amazing how things have changed from the administration I had the honor and pleasure of serving in uh, to where we are perhaps today. The alliance and friendship that we have and, and that we have around the world, forged in the ashes of two world wars, has endured and largely kept the peace. We're at the longest peace in European history, going on 70 years now. But it is built on consistency and reliability. Those are two really important words in, in foreign affairs consistency and reliability. Henry Kissinger recently wrote that international orders are the most stable when they have uniform perceptions. Part of that perception is the absolute understanding that if we do X, that if you do X, we will act. And if you threaten Y, we will immediately come to their aid. When the Austrians willfully violated their obligations to Russia by failing to help the Russian request for assistance in the Crimea against British and French forces, and they instead mobilized and chose to chip away at Balkan possessions, of Russia, Austria's foreign minister exclaimed, we will astonish the world by the magnitude of our ingratitude. In the end, two years later, it was Austria that was isolated when Napoleon invaded and the Russians did nothing to help them as the Austrians did nothing to help Austria. George Bush was sharply criticized by the current administration for being too neocon in a foreign policy we went into Iraq and Afghanistan to eliminate a clear and present danger against our country. We then began implementing a strategy to democratize both countries, whether they were ready or not. With the lessons of Latin America that it can take decades to build civil society, we will not know the outcome of this effort for years to come. But I'm reminded that in 1953 Harry Truman left office the single most unpopular president of the 20th century at the end of his term. Yet today we revere his steadfastness, his determination to stop the Soviets and contain and roll back the communist threat. Certainly South Korea is one of the primary beneficiaries of Harry Truman's grit and courage. In 2003 with shock and awe the United States and our allies allies dispatched the Iraqi army in a few weeks. However, the path to reconstruction we know was was tortuous and not over uh, today by any means. I was lucky enough to get invited by Dr. Henry Kissinger to dinner at his apartment in New York in 2005 when I was working at the United Nations. And I asked Dr. Kissinger, should we have invaded Iraq? His answer was simple, yes, absolutely, he said. I completely support it. However, once liberated, we should have replaced their son-of-a-bitch with our son-of-a-bitch," unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that certainly is real politic. So as we go back to different types of foreign policy we might embrace or experiment with or test, that certainly is one of the grandest ones of all, and certainly goes to the enemy of my enemy, is my friend, which is the classic foreign policy for uh, many a millennia. What then is the current state of our foreign policy, and, and where will the next administration take us? The current state of affairs under the Obama doctrine was certainly true in Libya, and apparently so in Egypt and Syria. I'm grateful to the Obama administration uh, that they did not act more forcefully in Egypt since they embraced the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood in Morsi, and believed that Morsi was the legitimately elected uh, uh, head of Egypt, uh, and even after a popular un- uprising uh, against uh, Morsi and the Brotherhood and his administration, even after he suspended uh, the laws, even after his he suspended the courts to review the laws that he was making, uh, uh, and even then when the army came in to support this popular un- uprising, uprising, the current administration believed that only with inclusion of the brotherhood as a political party could there be peace in Egypt. And yet this is the farthest thing from any of the thoughts of what the people and the current leadership of of Egypt believe. It's certainly not what the neighbors of Egypt believe, but yet it was the policy of the Obama administration and the Obama State Department. In Syria we had a very brief window to act to support secular rebels, Uh, over those with extreme intentions for a new Syria. Once again, however, in Obama's habit of excruciating delay and seemingly complete inability to make a decision, we missed the chance to fill the vacuum and instead ISIS uh, came in with other radical elements and filled that vacuum. We perhaps only had a six-month period. Mitt Romney during the campaign certainly called for us to arm the rebels. Hillary Clinton, we now know from some of the autobiographies that are trickling out of the Obama administration that Hillary Clinton wanted to arm a certain segment of the rebels, that uh, Secretary Panetta wanted to arm a certain segment of the rebels, but we missed that window, that window closed and radical elements took over the uprising in Syria. By this administration's complete inability to make a decision on a standard of forces agreement known as a SOFA, which is the agreement that allows us to keep our troops in another country, uh, we created a vacuum that is now being filled by the advancing forces of the Islamic State. We absolutely had a SOFA agreement ready to go. Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, with whom I served when I was at the State Department, a hardened combat veteran from Vietnam, had completely negotiated an agreement with al-Maliki. The president, however, wanted to keep the troops we had there less than 4,000. Maliki wanted uh, more than 20,000, and the military had recommended 25,000. President Maliki told Jim that under no circumstances would, would he expand, expend his political capital uh, to go to the parliament in Baghdad and get them to, and, and really shove down their throats a sofa agreement, unless it was going to be for a meaningful amount of American troops stationed there. The, uh, so because the president balked at this, President Obama balked at this, we have no SOFA agreement, we have no troops in Iraq, and thus ISIS is on the, uh, the gates of Baghdad. Uh, as we sit here tonight. Which brings us back to George Soros. Clearly, Mr. Soros has great personal reasons to fear. Uh, Russian's efforts to return to empire. He lived first under Nazi occupation of Hungary and then Soviet occupation. While only six when Hitler violated the Locarno Treaty and marched into the Rhineland with his instructions that if his army met any resistance from the French, he should, they should retreat immediately. However, emboldened by the success of this and a complete lack of willingness to stop Germany by uh, Europe, the rest of Europe, Hitler then advanced into the Sudetenland and then into Austria. Vladimir Putin has now annexed the Crimea and is running a proxy war in the Ukraine. The US and Europe has responded with sanctions that we call crippling, but as recently as two weeks ago in Washington, Uh, Mikhail Kordakovsky called these sanctions insignificant to Russia, all as Soros wrote last week for a concerted effort to stop Putin now. Who here in this room has not thought that this could be Obama's Munich moment? To do nothing now are we imitating what happened to Chamberlain uh, when he came home uh, on that fateful flight. We also remember the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War I. As we think about the road to World War II, where will we draw the red line then in the Ukraine? Where will we then draw the red line in Armenia or in Georgia? or in Latvia, or in Lithuania, or Estonia. If we do draw draw a red line, which we did once in Syria, will we erase it when it becomes inconvenient for us to live up to that? We have, as reported in the press, two instances of the President's waffling As reported in your Sunday Times this past August, the US knew where James Foley was being held by ISIS. The President was briefed, but yet he would not back a decision and did not make one for a month. When he finally did approve it, it was too late. Foley had been moved just days, even hours earlier. In another report, the President could not decide on the Bin Laden raid. We waited six months before pulling the trigger on the Bin Laden raid. And there's speculation in Washington, Washington that it was Panetta who actually ordered the raid, uh, supported by Hillary, uh, and that uh, only with that fait completed, did the president then come back off the golf course, I might add, to the Situation Room to see the real-time footage of our American SEALs going into Pakistan. It's, a, it's a, a history and a pattern of indecision. How would a Romney administration have responded? In the last campaign, Mitt called for a quick arming of the secular forces in Syria, as I've already said. It was a narrow window. The Obama White House missed it. The, uh, there would not have been an ISIS had Mitt been elected because there certainly would have been a SOFA agreement. There would have been 25,000 Marines and soldiers in Iraq that would have quickly dispatched an asian ISIS. Now we have the pledge of no boots on the ground, and we have an entrenched, well-funded enemy that didn't exist two years ago. We have allowed this cub to grow into a lion. Giving talk a chance is what community organizers do. That's a quote, giving talk a chance. By allowing the Iranians to buy years of additional time to complete the weaponization of their enrichment program, we are on the precipice of unleashing the greatest nuclear arms race since 1945. For how long will the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt all tolerate a nuclear Shia Iran without also building their own capability and arming? Or will a majority Sunni Pakistan resurrect the AQ Khan network? that sold nuclear technology to North Korea? And will they now sell it to the Gulf states, even this as the Russians stand in violation of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty? Had the Romney national security team been in place when Putin invaded the Crimea this past February, here would have been the response. First a regimental or brigade sized element from the 82nd Airborne would have dropped into Poland in 72 hours. While an airborne jump makes absolutely no sense in the modern age, former airborne myself, the Army does give a medal out for it, so why not give it a go? (laughs) Then the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines would have landed in Kiev for joint maneuvers. These would have then been reinforced. All this is not because Mitt or Republicans in general want war, it is rather that we want to keep the peace by stopping the example of a bygone era of aggression and annexation. Stop it not by appeasement but by action. The danger lies greatest in the next two years because Barack Obama is about to be delivered a resounding defeat next Tuesday when the Republican majority The Republican Party will sweep into a majority in the United States Senate, taking both houses of Congress. His agenda, such as it remains, will now be dead on arrival. His lame duck status thus magnified, and with the global perception of unpredictability, unreliability and retrenchment, who then will stop further aggression by Moscow? Whether the next president is Clinton or Kerry, Bush or Biden they will be forced to confront and confirm a foreign policy that will be based on reassuring our traditional allies and friends. Let me repeat that. We will be forced because of the policies we're currently employing or not employing, that we will be forced to reassure our traditional allies and friends that now question our commitment. And most particularly, to Great Britain and to Japan, but also to Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, and the Asian Crescent from Seoul to Delhi, and from uh, Tallinn down to Tbilisi, where we will demonstrate our commitment to supporting regional order, defending our friends, and unafraid to confront foes. We will not, under any of the potential candidates, Democrat or Republican, withdraw from the Middle East. We continue to believe, in fact, and we insist that we must have a peaceful solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We will face the tragedy of doing so now under a widening nuclear arms race in the Middle East. My friend and mentor and colleague at the State Department, Bob zellick said that with China we need to have a responsible st- stakeholder, but China's in trouble. They're economy is shrinking, they've grown at 14 or 15 percent, they may now be at 7 percent. The Congressional Commission on China recently came out with a report talking about the reliability of Chinese statistics. You don't have to look much farther than how our Bureau of Labor Statistics report our own statistics in the United United States to know that every quarter we we restate the statistics from the previous quarter. So think, I mean, if we can't get it right, think about how difficult it is in China. But nevertheless, China is potentially shrinking. Again, uh, at this dinner in New York uh, two weeks ago, uh, the comment was is not that China has gone from 15% to 7% growth, it's that China has gone from 15% to zero growth. That would be a dramatic shift for China, and it would have a dramatic shift on the 1.3 billion people of China, remembering that the top of the pyramid at China is 88 million members of the Communist Party of China, the CPC, and then below that the 1.2 billion people who are the workers and the laborers uh, struggling for a better life in China. There's also uh, uh, one other aspect of that is, and that is that that, how China now deals with the um, uh, protests going on in Hong Kong is going to define how China leads its own nation going forward. Is it going to embrace a more open society or is it going to clamp down in a Tiananmen type style for a more closed society? China, though, is an economic partner of the world, and it's a very economic, important economic partner of the United States. When Barack Obama wanted to pivot, though, there has never, there hasn't been any follow through to the Asia-Pacific, the Pacific pivot, the Asia pivot. Uh, to bring in China as a responsible stakeholder in the family of nations. Uh, The US and the world are at greater threat than any of the ones I've already talked about by a domestic threat. And that is the unbelievable amount of debt that we've added in the last 20 years. The debt is not just our national debt. Uh, It's not just our ongoing deficits of a trillion dollars but it's also the amount of unfunded liabilities we have across our retirement systems. Not just social security, but the retirement systems that uh, uh, in our state pension funds, our teacher pension funds, our corporate pension funds, particularly as we see the demographics of the world changing so rapidly. Demographics are one of the three revolutions we're in the midst of. We're, in a, we're in the, right in the middle of an energy revolution, the demographic and healthcare revolution, and the data revolution. In 1859, Colonel Edward Drake drilled an oil well in western Pennsylvania, and the world has been addicted to oil ever since. The Royal Navy switched from oil to coal in the early, early 20th century. The U.S. Navy switched in 1910 even but even today the new queen elizabeth carriers will be run by oil not by nuclear power so while peak oil from conventional methods was reached years ago we have not yet reached peak oil extracted from unconventional methods meaning fracking and we won't reach that peak level for decades to come moreover shale gas uh, is also r- rapidly becoming the uh, cheap energy of choice, both in home heating, electric generation, and then fleet uh, uh, propulsion, whether it's trucks, vans, uh, limousine fleets, taxi fleets. New lithium ion battery technology is producing a much cheaper alternative to gasoline and increases in wind and solar efficiency uh, has uh, produced incredibly cheap power that is approaching grid parity, meaning that it's approaching the same price level of Uh, both coal and and gas production of electricity. This will have deep consequences for the balance of power. Oil has now dropped to $80 a barrel. Russia unaffected by sanctions, according to Kortokovsky, is deeply affected by this price of oil. Their budget is built on an assumption of $85 a barrel or higher. Deutsche Bank and a couple other banks say that In fact, they fall into deep trouble when oil falls below $100 a barrel. It took two years from the time of a crumbling oil price in the mid-1980s to bring the Soviet Union to insolvency and then its inevitable breakup. How long will it take this time? Within two years, Obama leaves office, and shortly after that, the Keystone Pipeline will be built. In addition, a legacy law going back to 1973 that prevents us from exporting oil, crude oil overseas, with the exception of Alaska crude, that will also be reversed under a new Republican Congress. This will continue to drive Russia into economic stress as we continue to drive the price of oil down, and Middle East producers will also be subjected to budget constraints. Not quite as much, uh, but if we get into a real arms race in the Middle East, uh, then uh, Saudi Arabia and other nations will, will have, to, uh, have to pay for that with high oil prices. Countries to watch are Mexico, which just reformed their energy sector to allow for outside ownership and development of their energy fields. And then after that, Argentina, depending on how the election goes next October. Both have explosive economic potential, unlike Great Britain. Mexico is fully embraced fracking. Argentina will get there. Both countries have enormous natural uh, resources of shale gas and oil shale. On demographics today, there are 25,000 Americans over the age of 100. In 35 years, there'll be one million Americans over the age of 100. Just this week, The Wall Street Journal reported that actuarial tables in the US are now rising to 86.8 for men and 88.9 for women. This is a phenomenal increase, remembering that when Social Security was established by FDR, that benefits began at 65 and life expectancy ended at 65. So uh, he was certainly a crafty old fellow, wasn't he? This will put profound pressure on our retirement systems, as I said. Detroit went bankrupt because they could not afford their unfunded liabilities in their pension system. A half dozen states, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, even my native Connecticut, uh, will face bankruptcy in the next 15 years. We have uh, upwards in Connecticut of $100 billion unfunded liability, and that doesn't include the health care liability, that if you work for the state of Connecticut for 10 years, you get free health care for the rest of your life, in addition, we're on the verge of, of explosive improvements in healthcare technology. For the most part, a lot of what we do in healthcare is, is, dates back to the uh, early uh, 20th century. But with stem cell research and with data, healthcare is changing. By data, which is the other great revolution, data is going to be collected, it's already being collected on, on all things. There's a light bulb company down in Florida. They make uh, uh, LEDs. And the LEDs are going to begin to, these LED lights will begin to read your biorhythms. They'll begin to dim and filter out the white light as you approach uh, sleep time. They'll be able to call what we call in the United States 911. They'll be able to dial emergency aid should you trip and fall. This is your light bulb doing this. Your refrigerator, obviously, as we know, will reorder for you from the store. It'll get delivered. It's an amazing amount of data that we have coming in. Some of you may actually have an Apple watch on. Maybe you're collecting right now your, your blood pressure or your, your uh, uh, heart rate or other things. All that data will come in. All this data, it will change dramatically uh, our medicine, because we're going to begin to learn what works and doesn't work. Uh, One of my favorite things is, you know, are eggs good for you or bad for you? I like it when a doctor starts pontificating, a medical doctor. You know, hey, doc, I'm just curious about one thing. Can you just tell me, are eggs good for you or bad for you? I've always wondered, because every three or four years, you guys switch on us. Data will be able to come in, be aggregated, be manipulated. And then as we, for any of you data scientists out there, as we take that data, There's a really important point to stay focused on. Can you find value, the V? Can you find the value in that data? The data is going to change how we live our lives. The data will change uh, uh, how we do things. Do not fear the NSA. Mr. Snowden hacked into or whatever, joined the wrong group. He should have gone into Experian or into Google. Think about what they do. NSA may record our telephone conversations. They look at, look at it. You know, they look at a few thousand a year, when in fact there are billions of conversations that go on. Whereas Google actually looks at every search you do. Uh, Experian knows everything you buy. They know what toothpaste you use, and they're doing analysis on that. Now, I met last night through Peter, a former director of Experian, and he was saying, "Well, we do everything we can. To, we do everything we can to protect that." <laughs> Um, However, that data is out there somewhere, and it's your data. So data is one of the great revolutions that's going on, and it will also change how we we, uh, conduct foreign policy. President Obama wrote a book, Dreams of My Father. I'm writing a book. It's called Dreams of My Children. I have three teenagers at home, and I really wonder, you know, my wonderful father, a former New York Times reporter and editor. Do his dreams at 88 matter anymore? Or do the dreams of a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old matter? Yes, to me they do. As their father, I'm worried about the dreams of my children. And so we want to stay focused on those things that will continue to make our country and our community and our community of nations prosperous and at at peace. I want to leave you with uh, a story that uh, an event that happened when I was working with Colin Powell, every morning at 8 a.m. we would work with Secretary Powell, we would meet with Secretary Powell in his conference room and would go around the world and people would report things. In this case, the general counsel, Will Taft, um, told the following story. The United States had been sued by, in the International Court of Justice at The Hague by the government of Iran over some oil platforms that we blew up when the Iranians mined the Gulf to stop oil shipments. And we needed an experienced lawyer to argue the court case before uh, the Court of Justice. However, the United States government has a policy prohibiting the hiring of foreign lawyers, as well as what Congress perceives as excess fees. Thus, we could not hire the leading lawyer in the world with the best track record, a French lawyer, for arguing before the court on our behalf However, Will Will appealed to the Congress, and they changed the law for this one case. Will wrote to this distinguished advocate in Paris, asking him to take the case, but telling him we could only pay him $500 an hour for his services. Here is what the lawyer wrote back. Dear Secretary Powell, I accept with pleasure the honor of representing the United States before the International Court of Justice in this matter and I insist on doing so at no charge to the United States for three reasons. First, as a Frenchman, I know that without the United States and as a boy in Paris during the war, I would would be living under the jackboot of National Socialism today were it not for the US. Second, as a free man, I know that if it were not for the United States, I'd be living under the oppression of Soviet despotism. And third, as a Jew, I know if it were not for the United States, I would not have long survived the Nazi occupation of France. I think that's what the United States stands for, that we will bear any burden, that we will pay any price in defense of liberty. Nigel, I want to thank you and the Institute, and I want to thank uh, thank you for the special 200-year friendship ever since you burned our White House.